before we get into the heart of our study tonight, uh, let me do a little review. You may ask, why do you want to teach on depression? Well, depression affects approximately 14 million adults in America today. And if you're living with depression, you know all too well how it feels for you. But as, as it goes, depression affects people in different ways. For example, a depressed person may sleep too much while another depressed person doesn't sleep enough. Some people don't eat enough when they're depressed. Other people overeat when they're depressed. And certainly depression can be diagnosed by a healthcare professional, and I do not claim to be that. I'm just giving you some information about this malady. Um, it's, um, it's estimated, again, that depression affects about 14 million Americans every year, which is approximately one out of six of us here tonight. One out of six is suffering with depression, uh, according to this statistic. But as I said last Wednesday night, the Word of God, through the guidance of the Holy Ghost, can empower people who suffer from depression to live victorious lives and even be healed from depression. And I believe that tonight with all of my heart. If you do, say amen. Some with depression might think or say any of the following. I feel sad all the time. I just don't feel like myself. Uh, some may say I don't enjoy being with my friends or doing any of the things that I usually like to do. Uh, some may say I've been having a lot of trouble sleeping lately. Or sometimes I feel like my life is not worth living anymore. Um, I feel like I don't have any energy. I'm not really interested in eating. Uh, even after a long day, I still feel restless. I, I feel so indecisive, I can't make any decisions. I feel so worthless. All of these kind of statements are usually an indicator that a person is dealing with depression. Let me read our scripture text that we read last Wednesday night found in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning with verse 19. Jeremiah said, Remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. The word wormwood means intense bitterness. He said, My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. This is someone who is very down in their spirit, very low in spirit. This is what they're saying. This is how God is helping this person and a very low, probably a time of depression. Verse 25, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And then we read last Wednesday night in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, now when John had heard in prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And uh, I'll get in a little bit into that passage 
in a few moments. But many counselors agree that the three chief causes of depression are these. Number one is guilt, rejection, and the related emotion of self-pity. We ought not to assume that everybody who struggles with this emotional burden called depression are out of fellowship with God. Um, So we, we need to be careful how we judge people that we think are depressed and what have you. Last week, I, I did a, a lengthy focus on the guilt issue. Everybody say guilt. Counselors, therapists, psychologists, and so on, they all agree that guilt can be a huge cause of depression. And here's why. For example, many people still underestimate the effect of guilt in their life. For example, I've heard people who are living in sexual immorality say, we've learned to work through our guilt. And as I was very fervent last Wednesday night, you don't work through guilt. There's always a byproduct to a guilty conscience. What they really mean is that they have learned to ignore the guilt or talk themselves out of it. We forget that the consequences of sin are built into the nature of man. It's much like when you lose a family member and grief comes knocking on your door. You can go ahead and go through the grief process or you can literally discipline yourself to defer it. If you choose to defer grief, you can persuade people that, look, God is helping me. I'm working through this time. Grief isn't as bad as I thought it was. Really and truly, you're not even going through it. You've deferred it. And people do the same thing with guilt. But be rest assured. Be rest assured. No doubt about it. Disobedience. Guilt. Through the conduit of disobedience always has its consequences. All that the devil seeks in an unbeliever that is hostile to the truth or a Christian who lives in persistent sin, the devil comes to that person and he will take as much territory in their life as he can. And guilt is a huge source of depression. If you know people who are dealing with depression, if you know them well enough, usually there's something in their immediate past or even their far distant past that they feel like they have done wrong, there's no way to go back and do it over again, and that huge load of guilt takes over them and turns into depression. I went through a lot of that last Wednesday night if you were not here It should be on our church website if you'd like to go back and listen to it. Uh, If it's not on there tonight, when you get home, it will be there in a few days. Tonight, I want to talk to you about self-pity, which is the second uh, huge cause of depression is self-pity. Everybody say self-pity. It's when a person lives 
under that umbrella of feeling sorry for themselves. You know anybody that does that? You ever look at the person in the mirror and say, why do you keep feeling sorry for yourself all the time? You ever do, do that? You know that person. <clears throat> Self-pity. Depression usually follows a definite pattern. Depression usually follows a definite pattern. And you'll notice when a person begins his or her travel down the road of self-pity, the first thing they want to do when they're feeling sorry for themselves is to self-protect themselves. They go into self-protect mode. If you're deeply hurt in some way, if you have been deeply hurt in some way, perhaps somebody failed you or maybe some plan that you had collapsed, I could elaborate a long time here. I just hope you can fill in the blanks. I'm not talking about far away, long-distant people that lives over the sea. I'm talking to people that are here right now. Everyone in this building tonight has no doubt experienced some deep hurt at the expense of someone else. It could come through a parent. It could come through a child, through a sibling, through a friend. Usually it comes through people who are loved and trusted. Usually the greatest hurt comes at the hands of people that you have believed all of most of your life, if not all of your life, are the ones that should love you the most, care about you the most. So when they hurt you, you immediately go into self-pity mode and self-pity mode, the first step when a person is feeling sorry for themselves is that now I have to protect myself. So if you've been deeply hurt in some way, perhaps somebody failed you or maybe some plan that you had collapsed, you thought, man, this marriage number one was going all the way to death do you part, and it didn't. The big prospect of a high-paying job fell through at the last minute. You're feeling fine and all of a sudden you have this little bit of a queasy feeling and you go to the doctor and they spot cancer. All of these things can cause you to go into this self-preservation mode, this self-protection mode, and you do not want to fail yourself. Where your health may have failed you, friends, family may have failed you, you are not going to fail yourself. And this is why people go into self-protect mode okay my husband failed me or my wife failed me or my kids failed me or my parents failed me uh, my job failed me you can go on and on down the line so you develop a mentality that says I'm going to make sure this doesn't happen again I'm going into self-protection mode so in some way Hurt comes to you, and this hurt threatens to rob you of peace, enjoyment that you were formerly gleaning out of life. I want to say to everybody in the building, and set up straight and listen with both ears to the pastor, the best thing to do is to face the hurt that you're feeling, to face it honestly, and to deal with it. Don't defer it. Don't play like it didn't happen. Don't let it harden you. Don't let it make you bitter. Deal with it. Come to the reality of it. 
Okay, my spouse was a bonehead, and they left me. Deal with it. I'm not trying to be cold and calloused here tonight, but you can defer any of these kind of emotions, but sooner or later, they're going to come to the surface. You folks aren't hearing me very well tonight, I don't think. I just feel that. This is what happens. When a child is hurt in an adolescent age, let's say between 5 and 13, 14 years old, they could be select, uh, sexually molested by a parent, uh, aunt, uncle, cousin, sibling, anything along that line. They're, the inside of them is bankrupt emotionally. They're stripped of their innocence and everything. But listen to me. I deal with this stuff all the time as pastor. I deal with it quite a bit. They go to their parents, and their parents are hurt over it. If it wasn't the parents that did it. They go to people for help. And our society, our typical American society, is so not adequate to handle such a situation. We don't know what to do. So we tell them it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. They didn't mean to. It'll never happen again. We, we try to soothe it over. Well, this adolescent child grows up, and now they're 18, 20, 25 years old, and they're getting married, and they're feeling natural human feelings that are romantic, that are intimate, and what have you. And in those moments, all of a sudden, they get a relapse. That thing just comes back from their childhood and just slaps them in the head. And they push their spouse aside, and the spouse don't know why. It's never been dealt with. It's been buried, but it's never been dealt with. And now you have this person that's married with someone else attached to them now. And probably later on, one or two or more kids will be coming along. And now all of their parenting and all of their spousal relationship is going to run through the conduit of a hurt that happened to them in childhood that was never dealt with. I know what I'm talking about, folks. I, I've been down this road with folks many, 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 many times. When you're hurt by pastor, assistant pastor, oh, no, he don't do that. I forgot. If you've been hurt by the pastor, church people, parents, siblings, children, and we all do it. Everybody here tonight wants to take the role as the victim. I've been hurt by somebody. But we never take the role as a perpetrator. We never see where we do it. We always see when it's done to us. But everybody here tonight has been hurt in some way or another. Previous church, previous pastor, previous spouse, previous whatever. The more you defer it, the more you put it off, the more it spreads through every fiber of your being. And it comes through, it becomes a bent in your parenting and family relationships. On and on and on it goes. It's never dealt with. When people are hurt, they don't deal with it. 
The New Testament teaches you to deal with it. Jesus said, if you want to bring a gift to the kingdom, I want to give something to God, and you've been hurt by somebody, and it's really bothering you. You play like it's not, but deep down it is. What does Jesus say to do? Oh, just go ahead and bring your gift and just live the rest of your life in the kingdom as though nothing happened. Is that what he said? He said, lay your gift on the altar and go to that person and deal with it. I'm not being harsh tonight. And look, I've been hurt and I've caused hurt. And neither way is fun. I've hurt people and I've been hurt by people. But you deal with it. Everybody say you deal with it. Look at your neighbor and say deal with it. You know, y'all are too nonchalant. You, you, you think it's funny. Look at your neighbor and tell them seriously. Deal with it. If you put it off. Oh, God, if you put it off. I want to say to all of our moms and dads here tonight, heard comedians make it make light of it and make jokes out of it but you know kids in our society nowadays say if I'm messed up and I turn out to be a loser or whatever it's because my parents were no good I wonder if there's some truth to that just a little because moms and dads go through all kind of stuff and they carry it they're never transparent they're never open and they never deal with it and so we carry all this stuff on the inside of us all the time. And it just keeps building and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I want to tell you something. One of the saddest things you'll ever see is a person who is in their sunset years. They don't have much longer on the planet according to statistics. Now, if they're older than me, go figure. God lets them to live to be 400 then I just take back everything I said about them being elderly and living in their sunset years but it's really sad when you see somebody that's bottled up hurts all of their life and they've never dealt with it and they can't enjoy their latter days because they're so hurting they're so hurting so shipwrecked emotionally and it all begins with self pity everybody say self pity feel sorry for myself that wasn't in my notes that was free Amen. sometimes it's possible that we can hurt so much that we just don't seem to have the strength to deal with it so where we have been in self pity mode now it comes to self protection mode we've been hurt so bad we just don't have the strength to deal with it so we're just going to protect ourselves and make sure that it never happens again. Huge mistake. Because it's going to happen again. It will. Somebody, sooner or later, somebody down the road, it'll happen again. So because you've been hurt, this is what people do. Listen to pastor. I'm talking to everybody here tonight. Because you've been hurt, you pull yourself into yourself and you retreat 
from reality. You retreat from realities of life. You feel safe with yourself while at the same time you do not feel safe with others. I'll give you a good example. I have counseled very carefully, intermittently through the past with women who have been very hurt by a man. And the way they deal with their hurt is, first of all, they feel self-pity. I'm sorry for myself that this didn't work out. But they retreat inside themselves, and they get this mentality that says, okay, if I was hurt by a man, then that means every man on this planet must be a bad man. You retreat into yourself. And what you're doing, while you're saying with your mouth that every man on this planet must be a bad man, what you're really saying is I want to protect myself from ever being hurt by another man again. So I'm going to retreat on the inside of myself, and I'm going to protect myself. I don't feel safe with no one else but me. I hope the lights are starting to come on. You know why people don't fellowship with each other? You know why? Especially church people. We all come to church together, and we're safe in this environment right now because we're all in a big room, but you don't have to socialize. You know, you can come in late, you can leave early, and I don't want to be fooled with nobody. Don't anybody fool with me. What you're doing is you're pulling yourself into a shell to protect yourself against something that's happened in your past, making sure that it will not happen again. In one sense, self-pity becomes self-protection, and self-protection becomes kind of like a callus on your hand. It becomes kind of like a callus on your hand. It's a form of emergency protection. It helps to make that hurt area insensitive. How many of us bonehead men have not picked up a shovel in months and go out in the yard one Saturday morning on that cool spring morning and just go to town, man, and you realize when it's too late that the palm of your hand is one big open blister? <laughs> you know, you got 48 pairs of gloves in the garage, but the light never comes on. <laughs> but if you keep, that's what happens when you get hurt. It just makes an open wound. So, as you interact with people, you withdraw, and your heart just kind of calluses over a little bit in that area, and it becomes insensitive. That where once you had true, genuine feelings for people or certain kinds of people, you've had feelings of, I like to be around people. You've been hurt now, and your hand's all busted open, So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to socialize anymore, so I'm going to protect this sensitive area of my life. And this explains why most depressed people have no interest in life around them. They don't have a whole lot of interest in their family. They don't have a whole lot of interest in their friends, their jobs, and even their usual enjoyments. It's because they've built a callus around themselves that says, I'm not going to get hurt again. I'm in self-protection mode. I'm not going to get hurt. I'm safe with me. I'm safe with me. So the first step they do in self-protect mode is isolate. They isolate themselves. They pull away. They pull 
they separate themselves from everyone else. This brings us to the second step of self-protection, as I've just said, and that's self-pity. We feel sorry for ourselves, so we pull into ourselves. We retreat from life. We get all wrapped up in our own problems and pains and forget that other people have problems and pains as much or more than we do. Put that callous. Don't let us feel that anymore. You know how many times pastors walk out of this building after giving 40 minutes of everything I've got from the word of God, Calvary, the blood, and people sit there and, hmm, nice message and walk out the door. It's because all of life has calloused us so much that God himself can't touch us anymore. Everybody say, wow. Look at your neighbor and say, wow. The third step, the third step to self-pity, the first is self-protection, the second are, are to, uh, to hurt, being hurt in life. The first is self-protection, the, the second is self-pity. The third is self-punishment. You protect yourself by withdrawing, then you pity yourself because you feel isolated and then you start punishing yourself for whatever it is that you think you've done. I want to tell you folks, I, I don't know how many understand what I'm saying tonight, but guilt and self-pity and all of this is pride-related. We got into that last week. This is serious business. And we all, I would dare say that most people in this building to some degree live this kind of a life. We don't know what to do about it. That's why I'm teaching about it. So you... Start punishing yourself for whatever it is you think that you've done or that you've caused. And haven't you found with most people, if they've been hurt severely by someone, that sooner or later they say it's their fault that it happened? It's a byproduct of this process. So you go into self-destruct mode. Um, Satan is the ultimate destroyer. Jesus said he was. He knows how to get a beachhead in your life. He knows how to establish a beachhead literally in your head, in your attitude, your mentality. Just where you are the weakest. But there's an answer to this kind of depression. There's no need for you to feel the need to protect yourself and to pity yourself and then punish yourself. Jesus Christ can come to you and meet the need and help you defeat depression. Jesus said, folks, Jesus said, listen to the scripture in the context of this Bible study. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. God knows what to do in these kind of situations. The step to be aware of and to beware is self-pity. A Christian counselor talked to a girl who wanted help to escape from the cycle of suicidal depression. A few of his questions immediately brought deep resentment to the surface. She admitted that she was angry with her father who had left the family to live with a teenage girl. She was bitter against her friends at church because she felt like 
they didn't accept her anymore. She was resentful of her mother and father. Her bitterness was deep and vindictive. Expressions of self-pity almost always surface among those who are depressed. It's a, it's a symptom of depression, feeling sorry for myself. Many hours are spent rehearsing in great detail all the wrongs that was done against them. Often the depressed person prays but, but finds no relief in prayer because their entire prayer session is a rehearsal to God of all the things that was done wrong to them. It gets them nowhere. They don't really accomplish anything hardly by praying. So every insult, whether real or imagined, is meticulously added to the list of reasons why they have a right to be bitter. It bothers me greatly as pastor when people can't get past a, I'm going to be very respectful here, but a weepy, sobby relationship with God to worship without tears, to praise God without tears. Their whole entire prayer life is encapsulated in a cry and a sob. It's this huge mindset of nobody understands how badly I hurt. And they tell God this all the time as though they're trying to persuade Him of something that even God don't even know. They never get past that threshold. And it's, it's self, it's literally self-destructing. I want to say to everybody here today that um, it's important for, for church people, and, and I'll be honest with you as pastor, I struggle with it, but to be sensitive to such people. I try to be as kind, compassionate, long-suffering as I can, but after a while, after a while, you learn to start getting a grip and, and start making progress. I know people that's lived in a perpetual state of a down, gloomy relationship with God and virtually everyone else all of their life. That's just how they live, and I don't understand it. I don't know why you don't want to ever be happy and joyful and find contentment, fulfillment, not just look for all the bad and the wrong and the what have you that's happened anyway. We have to be sensitive with such people, with the breakup of families and the alarming rise of child abuse. There are people who have indeed been treated unfairly and unjustly, and the church needs to be sensitive to that. Brother Mike said amen. Our world is filled with injustice. We can readily understand why resentment and self-pity can develop. Listen to Pastor. Although we must show compassion, we cannot sympathize with those in such an emotional quandary lest they begin to think that we agree that they have a right to feel the way they do. For unless a person ever gives up that feeling of entitlement, they'll never recover from depression. As long as you feel like you have a right to be depressed, you'll never get better. 
have to surrender their flesh. I found that many people deeply resent being told that they are wallowing in self-pity. I remember when I was a teenager, not long after my dad passed away, I embraced self-pity mode. No one knows just how horrible it feels listening in my skin and my heart. And I rode that, uh, man, I surfed that wave as long as I could surf it until one of my brothers just got fed up with it and said, okay, man, you know, enough is enough. Get past yourself. You got to go on with life. Got a whole life in front of you. I didn't appreciate that. I wasn't one ounce happy. As a matter of fact, as mad as I was at life for my dad dying, now I'm mad at my brother because he ain't sympathizing with me. And his daddy died too because it just so happens we had the same one. I didn't like it. And most people don't. They don't like being told that, hey, you're going to have to get past this stuff, man. You're going to have to face the reality of what's happened to you. Had a, a sit down with somebody not too long ago over a very grievous situation in their life, and I, I felt hardcore. I wrestled with it after I, we left the the meeting. I, I felt brutal. I felt no, I, like I had no compassion. I asked Sister Murphy, "Did I sound harsh?" And I know I do anyway. Most of you don't think I do, but I think I do. But anyway, uh, but I just felt like a real mean man that you have to face what happened to you, and and absolutely not, and everything was fine. This person contacted me about two weeks later and said it's the best thing that ever happened to me. I needed somebody to proverbially grab me by the shoulders and just shake me real good and pop, 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 and you got to go on with your life. It sounds harsh, but you can't wallow in self-pity forever. Look at your neighbor and say, I can't. Greg, look at your neighbor and say, I can't. sat there and was looking at me and so I just said look at your neighbor I didn't think he heard me or something you know y'all got to get used to me I, I, just a little humor <clears throat> how can we help those who are filled with guilt self-pity or the feeling of inferiority that so often accompanies these destructive emotions some counselors would tell us that such a person must become strong so that he or she will learn to cope I'll tell you how I did it I pulled real deep within myself, kind of pulled my britches up real good and tucked my shirt tail in and squared my shoulders and put my chin up and said, okay, big boy, get over it. That's what I did to me. I did that to me. I got tired of thinking suicidal thoughts, and I got tired of crying all the time. I got tired of feeling it. Just, it just got to be I hated me. I hated myself. I know what I'm talking about tonight. I know I'm presenting to you information, but I've been there and done that. I know how it feels to have a 38 right here. I'm not proud of it, but I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. Sooner or later, bottom line, sooner or later, and any therapist or counselor will tell you this, and they'll get you real slow and easy up to this point, but pretty soon there's going to be a boom that you're going to have to just face it, deal with it, and move on. Everybody say amen. So how can we help people that have these kind of emotions? Well, 
We encourage a person to be strong so that he or she will learn to cope. He or she must adjust to the storms of life without allowing themselves to be victimized by the emotional hurt, the emotional hurt that these things cause. But in becoming strong, the person often becomes bitter, and you have to be careful about that. Have you ever seen somebody stomp away from a very hurtful situation and they won't talk no more about it? Oh, they're being strong all right, but they're getting bitter. So that's another downside, and you don't want to go there either. Well, I'm going to square my shoulders. I'm still mad, buddy. I'm still coming back to this. We ain't done. I'm, I'm going to deal with it, but, boy, we ain't done yet. Okay, well, you didn't accomplish anything. You're just going from one arena of trouble to the next. We have to encourage people to not surrender themselves and not allow them to think, not allow themselves to think negative emotions that are destructive to their well-being. You learn to think different. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. Did anyone suffer rejection worse than he did? We are a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things become new. This is the book. I'm teaching the Bible. Okay, I got to hurry. I'm going to spend about five more minutes. Um, I'm seeing information overload in your eye. But you can become strong. You can work through your situation facing, not deferring, not ignoring, but going through. But most of the time, the person withdraws, determining never to risk another friendship lest I be rejected again and the hurt becomes even greater and that she quits. Let me share a poem with you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here, share this poem with you. Went to the river, couldn't get across, paid $5 for an old gray horse. Horse wouldn't pull, so I traded for a bull. Bull wouldn't holler, so I traded for a dollar. Dollar wouldn't pass, so I threw it on the grass. Grass wouldn't grow, so I traded for a hoe. The hoe wouldn't dig, so I traded for a pig. And the pig wouldn't squeal, so I traded for a wheel. And the wheel wouldn't run, so I traded for a gun. And the gun wouldn't shoot, so I traded for a boot. The boot wouldn't fit, so I thought I'd just better quit, so I quit. It's the way we look at life sometimes, man. It just nothing works. Nothing ever, ever works. Who hasn't felt like quitting? Sometimes, maybe even many times, we all have had those, those moments where you just want to quit. There's days when, as in the nonsense poem I just ran, uh, I read that everything seems to go wrong, and when those days stretch into weeks and then months and maybe years, disappointments turn into discouragement, and discouragement turns into depression, and what happens? You're in trouble then. I still contend, I still believe, and I'm a living, breathing example of it, that people can recover. Now, I know a lot of you probably still think I'm weird and out there and all that, but I have recovered somewhat. It used to be worse. 
I'm saying that just kind of being silly. You folks hadn't smiled in 45 minutes. Did your face feel kind of tight like your skin is? No, I haven't smiled in was a man that lived in our subdivision. I never met him. He isolated himself from everybody. He felt like everybody was his enemy. He had huge drug problems. And um, I found out Friday that he terminated his life. The sad part about it is he had violent tendencies. His wife had a restraining order against him. She had not lived with him in several months, I've come to understand. And he was on, had been on parole and violated his parole and found out the police was coming to get him. And actually, they had already been to his house several times and knocking on the door, and he never came to the door. That's because about a week before he terminated his life, he was dead. But uh, he just couldn't finish it just once again it struck me it hit me hard this is the second suicide we've had in our subdivision this year the first one in February a man's wife left him and he killed himself this is a real malady in our area and it slips into the church more than you know and we're just throwing this information out to you tonight and it's not funny and if there's anybody here tonight that feels that way you're struggling in this area I'll talk to you a little bit but bottom line, you need to pray about it. And if you feel like you need to go see professional help, that's fine. But you don't have to live in this constant state of loneliness and hopelessness. And we mask it. We know we've learned how to mask it. We've learned how to mask it very good. But there's people living out there truly feels hopeless. And life, at least on this earth, really isn't going to get any better. And I'm living the best I can for you this evening to see you. I believe there's a biblical pathway that you could walk, a constant connect with God himself. Don't tell me tonight as heroic as we make David of the Old Testament out to be that the man didn't have moments where he wanted to go to God. Everything in the man's life fell apart, including himself. And you can read undertones when you read his psalm and the things that he wrote. He was down on himself, man, on many occasions very hard. But he always found a refuge in his meditation and his prayer life. As a matter of fact, he said, thy praise shall continually be on my lips. Why? Because that's how I get through the day, is I keep a steady, constant prayer connect, praise connect, worship connect, daily Bible reading helps you get through. Jeremiah said, great is thy faithfulness. They are fresh every morning. Good folks. I'm not nearly done. I'm not nearly done, but uh, we've, we've heard enough tonight. So if you'll stand with me.